All right, well, what's up, Traders Point family? I want to welcome uh, everybody joining us at Traders Point Church online, wherever you may be tuning in from around the world. We have some of our team right here in the room. So put your hands together, both in the room and online. Man, uh, we're really glad to have you join us. And uh, I just can't say it enough that I cannot wait for us to be able to physically regather together again as a church family at all of our campuses. I promise you that day is coming soon. And just wanted to update you, let you know that we're continuing just to uh, monitor and to plan and to especially pray. Uh, there's just no playbook for this. And so we're, uh, I would just covet your prayers for wisdom and guidance through this. I do want you to know that uh, we will be making a decision and have something more to share with you right after Labor Day as to what that is. But in the meantime, we are uh, gathering uh, together as a church outside. In fact, this Wednesday at our campuses, we're having an outside uh, worship time. So please do not miss that. You can get all the information at the website or on the campus Facebook pages. And uh, I just uh, am so proud of our team and everybody that calls Traders Point home. Uh, for the way that we are leaning in during this time. I just want to encourage you in that. I think we just need to keep encouraging each other uh, during this, these challenging days. And uh, don't watch the service alone. Watch it with someone else. Uh, get together with uh, your life group or some other families. Attend a watch party. Better yet, host a watch party. Be a leader during this time because we are the church right where we are. And I um, really do believe that God is strengthening us during this time, both individually in our lives as well as a church family. You know, in my uh, quiet time uh, with God this last week, he just kind of reminded me of something that I'd sort of forgotten about. But I remember when I turned 16, I uh, went right to the DMV and got my driver's license like that very day. And uh, I was so excited. I, my, my birthday's in April, which meant that I learned to drive in bad weather. I, I learned to drive in November through February. It was like the sleet and the rain and the snow and the ice. And it was really challenging and hard. And then something amazing happened. Like once I got my driver's license in April, I became an amazing driver. And it wasn't so much that I'd become a great driver. It was the weather changed. And all of a sudden the, the environment was, was different. And it was as if God by his spirit just kind of said, Hey, Aaron, you're learning to drive again in, in a storm. Like right now, for you individually, like you're learning some things in a, in a storm. And maybe you're learning how to communicate better with your spouse in a storm. You're learning how to be a better parent in a storm. As a church family, we're learning how to be on mission and to lead people to Jesus. It's what we do during a storm. And God promises that the storm will lift, and it will. And when he does, we're going to eat up some, some pavement, all right? We're going we're gonna to head down the road. Does anybody agree with me? Yo, you put your hands together in the chat in the room that you're watching. And so I just want to continue to encourage you. And uh, during this season, we are going to the Gospel of Luke for that encouragement. And so if you have a Bible or a device with a Bible on it, go ahead and meet me in Luke chapter 4. Last week we started this series, and uh, we are calling it Settled in Spirit. I'll tell you why just in a minute. Um, but uh, there are four biographies of the life and the ministry of Jesus that start our New Testament. So we don't just have one account of Jesus' life and ministry. There's four of them. And the reason why we have four, maybe the, maybe the simplest way that I could explain it, is um, if you are hiring somebody in your business or at work, instead of talking to one reference, uh, you talk to three or four, you're going to get to know that person better. Uh, if you want to have a special night out uh, for dinner, instead of just consulting one Yelp review, you look at three or four, and then you're going to have a better understanding of what restaurant to go to. 
And let me tell you, Jesus is infinitely better than a good hire or a great meal. And God wants us to know Jesus and his goodness and his grace. God doesn't want to be vague. God doesn't want to be misunderstood. In fact, Jesus would say in John 14, 7, he goes, hey, if you know me, then you know God the Father. That's an astounding statement. Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God cares about, if you want to know how God feels about all kinds of people, then just look to the life and the ministry of Jesus. And just so that we have an adequate account of it, he didn't just give us one biography, but four. And all of them have a a unique perspective and they're writing to a certain group of people so that we can understand Jesus better. But I love Luke's gospel because he is writing primarily with uh, the person who feels like an outsider. He has them in mind as he is writing his, his gospel. And we saw this last week. Luke is a physician, which meant that he is well-educated, and he takes his, his education and he applies it to what he writes about Jesus. And he, he, he's writing with a, a friend in mind, a guy named Theophilus, who is a fellow Greek. Luke's the only Greek uh, author in the New Testament. And he says to Theophilus, Hey, I've taken the time to write out an orderly account so that you might come to believe. And I'd love to know more about that relationship, but I, but I think we can fill in the blanks to see that Theophilus was a guy who uh, had some questions. Theophilus was somebody who maybe was trying to recover from some bad experiences. Theophilus wondered if he would be accepted as an outsider. He felt uncertain about his future. And Luke says, hey, I've taken the time to write about Jesus so that your spirit might be settled. And I don't know about you, but I need that. I think all of us are navigating through a year when we just feel unsettled and uncertain about the future. Many of us, we feel like outsiders for whatever reason. Maybe it's due to your ethnicity or your skin color. You feel like, will that be accepted there? Maybe it's due to your marital status. Maybe your spouse walked out on you. You you fought for the marriage, but they still left you. And you were rejected by maybe a group of Christians or a church because of that unwanted divorce. Maybe you grew up in a legalistic church environment. And when you graduated from high school, you were like, see ya. I'm never coming back into that environment. And you just wondered if you'll be accepted in that. Maybe you just got some questions about an unknown future. Then Luke is the gospel for you. And my prayer is that you would come to know the real Jesus. My prayer is that you would not become more religious, but that you would become more relational with the God who loves you and laid everything on the line for you. And so last week we left off in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus spends 40 days and nights in a desert known as the devastation, which is terrifying. And he squares off with Satan, and Satan's trying to tempt him. Satan's trying to derail the whole thing before Jesus can even get started. And it's a gift that Luke writes this down for us in Luke 4 because he shows us Satan's playbook. It's the same play he keeps running over and over and over again through the years. And then Jesus shows us how to stand up under it. And he emerges out of the desert in Luke 4. It says, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus goes to his hometown, his home region. He grew up in in Nazareth and the region was known as Galilee, and this first interaction that we're going to see with Jesus and a group of people that for all better, for maybe a lack of a better term, they were just known as insiders, right? They, they, they were Jewish. They, they were sort of like from Israel. They were part of like the family of God. And Jesus is going to communicate something to them that really reveals, it's going to set the whole tone of his ministry. It's ultimately what would crucify him on a cross. And it is the very heartbeat of God even to this day. 
And so we pick it up in verse 14 of chapter 4. It says, reports about Jesus spread quickly through the whole region. And he taught regularly in their synagogues and he was praised by everyone. Now, please understand, this is Jesus' home turf. This is where he would have uh, played baseball games and gone to summer camp. And everybody would have known who he was. And when he came back into town, people were like, hey, wait a second, isn't that Mary and Joe's boy? Like, my, how he's, how he's grown. We've been hearing some reports about some of the things that he's been doing and saying, particularly in Capernaum. And Jesus was like sort of like a hometown celebrity in a small town. Not very many well-known people had grown up in Nazareth. So this was a big deal when he came back. I don't know if any of you have ever had uh, anybody from your, the hometown that you grew up in who maybe went on to do bigger and better things. Maybe they became... Uh, kind of a celebrity in some fashion, or maybe well-known in some way. Uh, I grew up in a small town in uh, Joplin, Missouri, and uh, not very many people that have grown up there have gone on to do bigger and better things. But uh, there, there's one individual in particular that uh, actually went on to become relatively uh, well-known, um, and I actually went to junior high with him. And so we're the same age, and his name is Jamie. And uh, Jamie uh, used to talk about, like, go-karts, like, all the time. And we would go to the local go-kart track just for fun. But Jamie would never come out and hang out with us for fun because he was in the back at like the professional little oval with the full helmet, the bodysuit, uh, doing time trials. And just took it really, really seriously. And we all kind of gave him a hard time about it. Like we would joke around with him about it. And I think the reason why looking back is because we were jealous. And that's really what it was, is we wanted to be able to do that too. But none of us had the opportunity. And I sort of lost track of Jamie after junior high. We went to different high schools, grew up in the same town. But I went to different high schools. And about five or six years after high school graduation, uh, I'm on a road trip. And I pull over to a gas station late at night, uh, walk in, go back to the cooler to get something to drink, come around the corner. And there is a full-size uh, cutout cut poster of NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray. He's since retired. Uh, some of you might recognize that name. And uh, he's sitting there with his helmet. You know, he's sponsored by Bud Light. He's given like a big thumbs up. And I'm standing there with my slushy, like at like midnight going, what am I doing with my life? And uh, that's Jamie, who we used to give a hard time for racing go-karts. And now he's gone on to do bigger and better things. And I got to tell you, right then and there, I became a fanboy. I started following Jamie on social media. I watched all the NASCAR races. I figured out a way to work that into almost every conversation. Like that I knew Jamie McMurray, not even that big of a star, but big for Joplin, right? And uh and in the same way, Jesus comes back to Nazareth, and immediately all these people are fanboys. Like, hey, JC, remember the time we hung out that one summer? Can I get a, can I get a selfie with you? I mean, these people are, are excited about Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons, primarily for what they can get out of it. And their excitement isn't going to last long. And it goes on in verse 16. It says, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, and I want you to see this, um, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. So I just want to point this out just real, real quickly, is that Jesus grew up in church. Jesus grew up attending church. I never really thought about that until this last week. Could you just imagine being from Jesus' home church? Better yet, could you imagine being the uh, teacher who taught Jesus in kids' ministry? How intimidating that would have been? Like Jesus over there in the corner multiplying the goldfish and Kool-Aid? Did you imagine, like, Jesus, there were so many times when he was growing up that he was, like, sitting in there going, this is a really bad sermon. 
Like, that, that's not true, right? I, like, I could totally run circles around you. That would be so intimidating. But what I want you to, I just want to point this out real quickly, is that uh, Jesus had a home church, and it was imperfect. But he went as usual. That the Son of God went to church, uh, and that he, thought, he saw value in it, even though it was in, an imperfect gathering. And if Jesus thought it was important, then you and I need to be there too. Not, not necessarily for what we get out of it, but for what we contribute to it, that God actually uses the lives of other imperfect people to help us grow. But that's a different sermon. Verse 17 says, The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So they knew that Jesus had been teaching, and so hometown boy comes back, and they want to hear from him, and so somebody hands him a scroll. Now, the, the Bible at the time, they obviously didn't have the New Testament. It's being written by, at this time. They had the Old Testament, and it wasn't like in a, in a paper Bible like the ones that we have with chapters and verses. Uh, chapters and verses are not inspired, by the way. They were added later on just to help us navigate. And now, now not only that, maybe you don't even have a paper Bible. We just use the Bible digitally, and you just kind of type in or tell Siri where to take you, and it just automatically goes to the Bible passage that you want to look at. But at the time, the Bible was just a big, giant scroll. And it shows how well Jesus knew the Word of God. He just went right to the place that he wanted to read. And he reads out of the prophet Isaiah, which contains the best summary, by the way, of the life and the ministry of Jesus in the Old Testament, so much so that Isaiah is oftentimes referred to as the fifth gospel, because Isaiah is so clear about who Jesus is and what he has come to do, get this, 700 years in advance before Jesus would be born. And Jesus is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and he says that the Messiah has come to liberate four kinds of people, which we all fit into these categories in one way or another. He says the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. And then he references the year of the Lord's favor. It's a reference to something called the year of Jubilee. And if you're not familiar with it, it's an incredible thing. Every 50 years, there was a reset. Every 50 years, the people got to take a mulligan. They got to take a do-over where captives were set free and debts were canceled and property that was lost, it got returned. It was a year where everyone got a clean start. And my vote is that uh, we get another one of those this year. Right? Can't we all just kind of say, time out, let's just get a redo on 2020. And Jesus references this year of Jubilee. It was as amazing as it sounds. And then in verse 20, it says that he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. And then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Wow. In fact, this is the first mic drop moment in recorded history. All right. Jesus has just said, hey, there has not been a prophetic word spoken in 400 years up until this point. And Jesus is talking about something that Isaiah prophesied 700 years before. And he says, hey, you want to know all that stuff that Isaiah talked about? Uh, that, that person that would come to, to, to for the poor and the oppressed and the captives? He goes, you're looking at him. 
I am right here. I have come to fulfill the very promises that God gave 700 years ago. And in verse 22, it says, Everyone spoke well of him, and they, was, they were amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. And I think primarily it was because they thought, much like Jesus' disciples often thought, that Jesus was talking about an earthly kingdom. That he was talking about something he was going to immediately usher in for their immediate benefit. And since they were from Nazareth, his hometown, they were likely going to be the very first recipients of this social and economic revolution. And that's why they were initially excited. But that excitement isn't going to last long. Because apparently there was at least one or two people in the crowd that began to question it. And that's usually all it takes. Usually all it takes is a a little bit of cynicism, a little bit of division, and it will spread faster than any virus. And somebody poses this question that other people jump onto. They say, how can this be? They asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Translation. Jesus grew up in a carpenter's shop. He's not an heir to a kingdom. Jesus, you're a nice guy and all. But you're just a regular guy. Like, take it from us. We, we grew up down the street from you. Jesus, we, you were in our homeroom class. Like, if, you're, 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 you're a good guy. But, I mean, being the fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy, that just seems like quite a leap. And it was just that little bit of doubt coming from the hometown crowd that sort of just sets everything else in motion. And notice Jesus' response in verse 23. And as you read it, you can almost get the sense that Jesus just kind of takes this like sigh of exasperation he just kind of says well you will undoubtedly quote me this proverb or this saying physician heal yourself meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum but I tell you the truth no prophet is accepted in his own hometown now what is that supposed to mean well uh, in in those days uh, as you might imagine they're Uh, medical advances hadn't gone very far. And so a lot of people, uh, they were quite skeptical of physicians. And so if a physician offered some sort of a remedy, they would often say to that physician, well, uh, prove yourself, you take it first, and we'll see what happens. You drink it first, you inject it first, and we'll see if you grow a third eye or something. And if you're okay, then we'll take it. It was almost like this idea of you've got to prove it before we'll believe you. And that's what Jesus is referencing here. And as far as they were concerned, Jesus was just an heir to a carpenter shop, not the kingdom of God. And then Jesus launches into a passage that it, the, the next verses, I'm just going to warn you, it sounds a little bit confusing, but I'm going to, I'm going to unpack it for us. So hang with me. But it is the very heartbeat of God. And we oftentimes miss it. Jesus responds in a very unusual way. Look at verse 25. Certainly there were many needy needy widows in Israel. So note that Israel sort of like home team advantage. This is kind of the very essence of God's people. In Elijah's time. When the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. Instead he was sent to a foreigner. A widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy in the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. To which you have to go, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? 
Like it just kind of seems like Jesus is just sort of taking a dramatic turn into, uh, into a, uh, taking the conversation into an area where you're like, I don't understand what, he, what he's talking about here. So let me break it down. What Jesus just did here is he is giving examples of two of the greatest Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah and Elisha were like the Michael Jordan and the LeBron James of the Old Testament. Like they were the best prophets and prophets lived a really rough life. Why? Well, because they were oftentimes saying things to people that people didn't necessarily want to hear. And they oftentimes suffered from depression due to frequent rejection. They were booed off stage a lot. They often went without honor in their hometowns. And Jesus is saying, God used these two guys to share his grace with two outsiders. People who didn't belong to the religious establishment. People that were not from Israel. Oh, there was lots of widows in Israel. But God chose Elijah to go to a widow in a foreign land. Oh, there were lots of lepers in Israel, but God chose Elisha to go to a leper in a foreign land. And he makes a point to stress that God's grace can reach anyone. If I could put it this way, I would say this. Jesus is stressing that his grace wasn't just for those in Israel. We might say it in today's terminology, a.k.a. church people. But it's for, say it with me out loud, both in the room and online. Anyone and everyone who is willing to come to him in faith. Please never forget that. Man, you you forget that, we ruin everything. You forget that, this just turns into toxic, self-righteous religion. Jesus is willing to come to anyone and everyone. And and he references this widow. Well, who is she? Well, her story is found in 1 Kings 17. You can read it later today if you'd like. I encourage you to, it's an amazing story. And there is this famine in the land. Everybody is suffering, including the prophet Elijah. And God says to him, hey, listen, uh, why don't you go to the, this foreign land? It was actually the land where they worshiped Baal, which was sort of like an arch enemy of God. He said, there's a widow there. She has a little son and she'll give you something to eat. And Elijah goes to this widow and he says, God sent me to you, which by the way, she didn't acknowledge God. She didn't worship God. She worshiped Baal. And he said, uh, God, God told me to come to you that you'd maybe have something to eat for me. And initially her response wasn't good. Initially her response was, I don't have anything. I'm a widow. Like, you should be feeding me. And she's like, why don't you tell your God to provide for you? And he's like, well, God sent me to you. And he said, listen, I I get why you might be skeptical. But don't be afraid. Bake a cake and give me some and then feed you and your son. And I promise you this. He says this in verse 14. God will, will make sure that the flour and the oil will not run out until the end of the famine. And amazingly, this widow, she does it. Now, why does Jesus give this example? Well, partly because it's, she's, she's an outsider, somebody that you would least expect God to use. But I think primarily it, it was this, and this is an important lesson for us, is that she had to believe God's promise before she would ever see God's provision. And I'm just saying that somebody today needs to hear that. I know I do. Because oftentimes we get it reversed. We, we want to see God provide, and then, then we'll believe his promise. Well, he came through for me. But God says, no, I, I want you to believe my promise before you give me my provision. Well, why does it work this way? Well, because God wants your relationship. He just doesn't want you, he just doesn't want you to just uh, turn this into an equation. In every relationship, every friendship, maybe it's your relationship with your spouse in some way, it requires trust first. You can't say, well, well prove it. You, you've got to take some sort of a risk. And God says, well, trust my promise and then just watch me provide. 
And we see this play out in the life of this widow. The same thing with the story of of Naaman the leper. God just reinforces the exact same truth. Naaman was a commander in the army of one of Israel's most despised enemies. But unlike the widow who was poor, Naaman was, was wealthy. But he was just as needy. And he has a physical ailment. He's got this skin disorder, leprosy. And uh, he goes to Elisha, uh, from, travels from Syria. And Elisha says, uh, hey, why don't you dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times? It seems kind of an unusual thing to do. Why couldn't he just dip once? Well, why couldn't he just dip four times? Well, what about eight times? Would that be one too many? Why seven? And he says, dip seven times. And Naaman initially uh, is skeptical. He's just like, that sounds ridiculous. But thankfully, he's got a group of friends around him that speak into his life. They pull him aside and they say, hey, man, you've come all this way. What have you got to lose? Why don't you just try it and see? And he does, and he's actually healed. And see, this is what I want you to see, is that Naaman's faith was flimsy, but it was enough. And I want you to know that your faith may be flimsy, but it is always enough when you place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I would even go as far as to say that if your faith doesn't feel flimsy, you're probably doing it wrong. Like if your faith feels like rock solid, like you're like, oh man, I've got all the confidence in the world. I would go, what do you exactly have confidence in? See, you may have all kinds of questions. That's exactly what faith is. It's trusting God's promise before his provision. And we are completely dependent upon God's grace. We're leaning all of our weight against Jesus, not just some of it. We don't bring anything to the table. And so Jesus gives these two examples here. And when the insiders, the church people from Nazareth, hear this, their admiration for Jesus quickly turns into exasperation. And the whole tone in the room changes. Check it out, verse 23. It says, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. That's just heartbreaking. Jesus just gave two examples of two needy people who felt like outsiders, how they received the touch and the grace of God in their lives. And the response from the church people was they were furious. And jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. But he passed right through on through the crowd and went on his way. I would love to know how that worked. Luke doesn't give us the example of how, but what, how did Jesus do that? Did he just kind of slide on through? Like, did he did he moonwalk out of there? Like, did he levitate? Like, what do I? I would love. I'm going to ask Luke one day. Like, how did Jesus do that? But they were furious with him, and they wanted to throw him off the side of a cliff. See, Jesus just told them something that they didn't want to hear, but it was truth. And when you hear something that is truth that you don't want to hear, the result of that is conviction. And there's only two responses to conviction. You can either be cut to the heart or you will harden your heart. And if you are cut to the heart, man, that is a pivotal moment in your life and in mine. See, when you were cut to the heart, conviction, you ever ever had that moment where you just feel like you're the only person in the room and, and, and the speaker or the preacher or the teacher is speaking directly to you and it's just like, it hits you like a Mack truck and it's not fun, but you receive it in humility and God will always work with that. Or you can be, you can harden your heart. You, you end up, lashing back out or you end up, well, not me, or you make an excuse and you just continue to harden your heart even further. 
When I first started preaching about 25 years ago, I had a mentor pull me aside. He said, Aaron, are you sure you want to preach? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And he goes, make sure. Because preaching is dangerous business. And I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, every time you stand up, if you are declaring truth from God's word, it is as if you are throwing yourself into oncoming traffic weekly. And there will be people who not like it. And you know what? Looking back all these years later, he is right. It is amazing to me at times I can preach a message out of God's word and get dramatically different responses from people. And there will be emails and letters from people who are cut to the heart. And they will say, it was not easy for me to hear that. And it was, it was uncomfortable. And I even got angry a couple of times. But man, God hit me like a Mack truck. And that was the, that was the turning point in my life. Thank you, for, thank you for saying the hard truth. The exact same message. I'll get another email. How could you? How could you say that? And now I've never had anybody threaten to throw me off the side of a cliff. But the year's not over. All right? So this might be the year where that would happen. And I just want to challenge you and encourage you. That if you're always just liking what you hear out of a message from God's word, that maybe you're hearing it wrong. Because God wants to say some things that make us uncomfortable, but it's for our good. And this crowd wants to throw Jesus off the side of a cliff for what he just said. Well, why in the world would they want to do that? Well, they resented the implication that outsiders would receive something so easily that they themselves as insiders did not have the faith to receive. Let me say it this way. They were offended by the idea that God would extend grace to people who didn't deserve it. And many of us still get offended by that. Maybe we don't say it in so much words, but maybe it's, it comes across in our behavior. It comes across in our actions. It comes across in the way that we conduct ourselves on social media. See, what makes grace grace is that none of us deserve it. That's why it's called grace. It's, we don't bring anything to the table. And grace loses its power both to engage people and to transform lives when we forget that. It sours when we forget that we are unworthy, just as like anyone else, that the ground, that the, uh, level, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And sadly, as far as we know, when Jesus says this to the hometown crowd of Nazareth, this is the last time that he would ever visit there. We don't have any recorded history of Jesus ever going back to Nazareth. And even to this day, Nazareth, while it is still highly religious, it is not very receptive to Jesus. That should be a warning to the rest of us. So what's the application? I've got two big application points for you. Here's the first one. If you want to write it down, take a picture, talk about this in your life groups. Jesus makes his grace available to everyone, not by what you do, but by your faith. Therefore, don't make it more complicated for yourself than it needs to be. And as a pastor, this is one of the things that I've seen over and over and over again through the years is people have a tendency to make it more difficult than it really needs to be. They, they, they feel like they, they need to know more. They, they feel like they, they need to get their act cleaned up first. They feel like they need to get a few things in order. And, and then they'll come to God at just the right time. And God wants you to come just as you are because it is not based upon what you do or even what you know. You only need to know one thing. Uh, God saves you by his grace. And I'm putting all of my weight on Jesus. It's his finished work on a cross, not anything I bring into the table. It's, it's not 90-10. It's not even 50-50. It's 100. It's 100-100. It's all on Jesus. I remember when this vividly, uh, uh, the light bulb came on for me when I was growing up because I kind of grew up in a, in, a, in a church environment where I, like you would say, well, you're saved by grace. I didn't even know what that meant. I just thought, well, yeah, but I still got to go to church and I got to act right and I got to believe and then God will accept me, you know, based upon my behavior. And I, and I was kind of functioning that way. 
And I was headed towards either becoming a self-righteous Pharisee or I was headed towards walking away from God altogether once I graduated. And I'll never forget my senior year of high school in my chemistry class. My chemistry teacher was named Mr. Hollingsworth. And we had this big chemistry test coming up. And we all knew it was going to be really, really hard. It was going to be a big part of our grade. And uh, Mr. Hollingsworth had kind of been hamming it up for a couple of weeks. Like, hey, you guys better get ready. This is going to be a big test. And the day came. He hands it all out. And he gives us this one set of instructions. He says, I want you to put your pencil on the table. Do not answer a single question until you have read every single question in the test. And then at the very end, there's some instructions then you can start the test. So I was like, well, this is a little bit unusual. So I started reading through the test, and about three or four questions in, I realized I was in trouble. Like, this was like PhD-level chemistry. Like, there were questions. I didn't even understand the question, let alone how to answer it. And I'm reading down through it. I'm just getting this sick feeling in my stomach because I knew this was going to be a big part of my grade. And I'm like, I am in so much trouble. And by the end of reading through the test, I just was like, uh, I, was like I don't even know how to even begin any of this. And I got down to the very end, and there were these instructions from Mr. Hollingsworth that simply said this. You can try and get an A by taking this test, or you can just put your name on it and automatically receive an A. Mr. Hollingsworth. Now, some of you are like, what kind of school did you go to? And that's a valid question. And uh, some of you are like, this explains a lot, actually, really. Um, and I got to tell you, uh, I didn't hang around long enough to see if he was joking. I was just like, sweet, like Aaron Brockett. And I and made sure I spelled it right. And then I go up, turn it in. I was out of there, right? And uh, most of the rest of the class did as well. But two people didn't. The first was a guy named Patrick. Now, Patrick was a nice kid, but let's just say um, he was not the sharpest tool in the shed. And Patrick was kind of daydreaming when Mr. Hollingsworth gave us instructions. And so immediately he uh, starts trying to answer every question. And he, there's obviously no way that, that he can. And uh, it didn't even dawn on him that everybody else had left the room. But he's still like trying to answer all the questions, trying to do everything he could. He flunked the test. And then there was Michaela. Michaela was the class valedictorian. She had the highest GPA. She was headed towards a full-ride scholarship to a Division I school. She was a brainiac. And Michaela was so upset that, at this that she, because uh, she had spent so much time studying, and she was not just going to uh, get an A by putting her name on the test. She's like, what kind of teacher does that? What kind of teacher gives away an A for nothing? And so she stayed and she took the test on principle. She was going to earn her grade. And she stayed there and she answered every single question. Now, annoyingly, Michaela still got an A minus, all right? But she could have got an A plus. And today, I believe that there are generally kind of three kinds of people. There are those of you right now that I would just say are maybe unaware of God's grace. Maybe you're a little bit like, like Patrick. And you're just kind of taking the test. And you really desperately want to be loved and valued. You're constantly searching for that in a new job, in a new relationship, in a new pursuit. You're trying to be good enough. You're trying to be religious enough. You're trying to be spiritual enough for God. You're trying to prove yourself, but it often feels like you're flunking. And then there's others of us who are trying to maybe earn God's grace. Maybe you're a lot like Michaela. And all this grace stuff just kind of ruins the system that you've been living by. And if God loves you and accepts you by grace, well, now what are you supposed to do? And it kind of seems unfair. And there's got to be something more. 
And it just almost kind of seems like a license for people to live their lives however they want. And you don't like that. We don't like handouts. We like feeling validated by comparing our best moments with other people's worst moments. And we're trying to earn our status. But what I'd like you to do, regardless of whether one of those two categories you might find yourself in, is to find freedom today and to just simply receive God's grace. Don't, try, don't be unaware of it. Don't try to earn it, but just simply receive it. Recognize and claim that without Jesus, you and I bring nothing to the table. We are poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. Now, don't be offended by that. Be convicted by it, for sure. But don't be offended by it. Are, are you sincere? Of course you're sincere. Are, are, are you good? Do you have some good in you? Of course you have good in you. You've been created in the image of your heavenly Father. Now see him and recognize what he's done for you and how much he loves you. And you lay it on the line. You say, Jesus, I want to do this with you, not, not apart from you. And you just sign your name to the test by faith. And Jesus says, come on in. You're part of the family. And at this point, I know because I'll get the emails. We'll back it up by scripture. I'm glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so let me leave you with this last application point. And this is maybe the most important for those of us who might be quote unquote insiders. Jesus makes his grace available to everyone by faith. Therefore, don't make it more difficult for others than it needs to be. Don't make it more difficult for others. Now, can you have personal convictions? Absolutely. Just don't let those become barriers to others receiving his grace. Because life change happens when you come to Jesus, not before. Do you have like, uh, do you have standards of personal holiness? Well, absolutely. And those are great things to help you grow in your faith. But realize that I didn't expect my kids as they came in as infants into the world to be fully mature. No, I walk with them into maturity. And we do the same thing when it comes to everyone and anyone. I'll never forget uh, my senior year of high school. Uh, the town right outside where I grew up is known as Webb City, Missouri. And uh, they have an amazing football team. They have for decades. They like win all these Missouri State Championships. If you've ever seen Friday Night Lights, it's like pretty much Webb City football. A uh, little tidbit for you, our very own Landon Rose, our worship leader, he's from Webb City. He actually played on their football team. You can tell he's, he's massive, all right? And, but, uh, but, th but I'm a little bit older than Landon. And so uh, when I was in high school, like that team was really special. They had several guys that went on to play uh, Division I football, a couple of them in the NFL. And one of the team leaders, his name was Dusty Frizzell. Dusty and I were the same age, had very little in common. Uh, Dusty was notorious. Like we knew him all over the region. Dusty was uh, a fireball of an athlete. And he uh, was a wild man. He was a partier, uh, always in trouble. He was super cool. Everybody wanted to be uh, like him. Uh, usually when I would see him, I, I would never look him in the eye because I, I didn't want to draw any attention from him. I, I didn't want to be picked on by him. So I just kind of kept my distance. Graduated high school and uh, I enrolled in the small Bible college there in, in town. I stayed in town to go to Bible college. And I'll never forget my very first day of class, I walked in and I got there a little bit late. The room was already packed. There was only one empty seat on the front row. And so I walked in and right next to me was Dusty Frizzell. And I was totally shocked because everybody knew that he was supposed to go play uh, college football. And I'm like, I'm so confused. I'm like, what is he doing in Bible college? And I, uh, 
was afraid to ask him because I thought this has got to be some practical joke and I don't want to be the butt of his joke. And so I'm just trying to like look straight ahead. And after class, he just kind of nudged me and he goes, hey man, he was like, my name's Dusty. And I could just tell there was something totally different about him. And I was like, hey, I, I know who you are. I was like, my name's Aaron. And over the course of the next few weeks, Dusty and I sat together in class and we would get together on occasion and Dusty shared with me his story. He said, right after high school graduation, he was partying like all summer. And he said he hit rock bottom, hung over and high, and he had this dramatic conversion experience uh, with a small group of friends that were reading the book of Romans. And it was just this amazing thing where in the middle of the night, he gave his life to Christ and his dad baptized him in their bathtub. And Dusty said, upon my conversion, I felt immediately called into ministry. He, he walked away from the football scholarship, enrolled in that small Bible college there in town. Dusty and I became friends. We hung out all through four years of college. Dusty uh, is now a student pastor at a large church in the Los Angeles area. He is one of the most passionate communicators that I've ever heard. And he has impacted the lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of students. And not too long ago, I got a text message from him. And he said, hey, Brock, I was just thinking that um, doing some reflecting, he said, today marks the 25th anniversary of when I came to know Jesus. And he said, I, I've, uh, God's just been kind of recalling some of those old memories. And he said, I was so uh, intimidated to enroll in Bible college because I was a brand new baby Christian. And he said, I didn't feel worthy. He said, I knew that a number of you knew who I was. And I thought that you would think I was a fraud and I thought that you would think I was insincere or just give it enough time, I'll fall away. And he was like, you, you were one of the first people to just befriend me and accept me as I was. And he said, thank you. I gotta tell you, I didn't deserve it because I thought, man, if you only knew what had ran through my head. <laughs> and I'm like, God, thank you that you at least gave me a flimsy of enough faith to just encourage him and to fan into the flame that you had already started in his life. So I just wanna leave you with this today. If you call yourself a Christ follower, would you please represent him well? Right now in this divided world that we are in, there is a Dusty Frizzell in your life somewhere who's watching you, who's looking to you, wondering if you're gonna accept and receive them. Don't just tell them about God's grace, show them, live it out. Right now, we are living in some of the most divisive times in our lifetime, and the world is watching how Christ followers conduct themselves, both in person and online and on social media. The things that we say, the things that we repost, the fears that we perpetuate. And right now is the time for us to represent the grace of Jesus that's available to anyone and everyone. When the world is at its darkest, that's when we should shine the light the brightest. Amen? Amen. And finally, if you're here today watching in your car, watching in your living room, in your backyard, replaying this later in the week, and you're like, man, I, I've always felt like an outsider. I've always wondered if I would be accepted and received. Can I just say to you right now, you are welcome. And that God's grace is enough to reach you wherever and whoever you are. And today, if you wanna respond, you can just simply go to tpcc.org slash Jesus. And we would love to just meet you right where you are. No, no judgment and just help you walk through your next steps in your spiritual journey.
And so what I wanna ask us all to do, both in the room and online, would you just stand to your feet as I pray and we're gonna, we're gonna worship together just one more time. Father, we come to you today and I thank you for your grace that is available to anyone and everyone. And may we never forget that, God. May we continue to lean into it and may we continue to give it to as many people as possible. God, if there's somebody here today who's placed their faith and their trust in you, we celebrate that with them today. We thank you, God, for your goodness and your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen.